Good morning. All right, this is a fourth message from Ephesians. I'm going to read through Ephesians, beginning in chapter 1, going through chapter 2, and ask you to underline certain parts of the text. Then we're going to come back and I'm going to share my message with you for today. I want us to look now, first of all, at verse 18 of chapter 1. Verse 18, chapter 1. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance. Underline his glorious inheritance in the saints. In his incomparably great power for us who believe. Now chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. When he says the spirit uh, at work, and he talks about the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's a metaphor for Satan. And it could be an interesting thing to look at biblically how the subject of evil is dealt with. Not today, but just make a note of that. All of us in verse 3 also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. Underline, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable parable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace, second time he says that, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not God's works, so that no one can boast. And underline, we are God's workmanship, also translated masterpiece. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So underlined his rich inheritance, you were dead, made us alive, God's masterpiece. Okay, I want to I go back um, to something we talked about last week, because I just touched on it briefly. And it's such an important idea that I want us to swim around it a little bit longer. And the reason I think it's important to go back to this idea about God's rich inheritance is because inside almost every person in this room, for most of our lives, many of us are plagued with kind of a fundamental sense or feeling of insecurity fundamental sense of insecurity about ourselves. 
And that fundamental sense of insecurity impacts our self-esteem, impacts how we show up and how we treat others. It impacts our relationships, impacts the way that we raise our children, impacts our careers. There are a lot of people who have really extraordinary gifts that have been buried inside of them but are never shared because of that fundamental insecurity. And the reason that we have so much unhappiness in life often is because the validation we're seeking is outside of ourselves. And the problem is this world, this world we're living in, in spite of all the good things in it, can never meet that deepest need that's inside of you. Only God can do that. So that's why when he says in this passage, he says, I pray, I pray that you would know your hope, and I pray that you would know God's rich inheritance. And whenever I've read that in the past, I've never really understood what he meant by that. But when he says his rich inheritance, he's talking about you. He's talking about me. He's talking about the church. He's saying that of all the things, all the things that God created, the sun, the moon, the stars, everything, when God counts his treasures, his most valuable possession is the life he put in you, the gifts he gave you. You are his treasure. Now, when, when, I, when I figured this out, it, it flipped my understanding of some of the traditional parables of Jesus. In particular, one parable, for instance. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells a story of a man who is walking through a field, and then he finds a treasure that's been overlooked, passed over, forgotten, rejected, buried, left behind. And when he finds the treasure, he's so astounded by what he's, what he's found that he goes back home and sells all of his possessions, everything. He gives away everything in order to buy the field, in order to claim the treasure. Traditional interpretation of this parable is that Jesus is our treasure. And that we search the whole world looking for meaning and for truth. And then we, when we find him, it's worth everything we have. Now that's beautiful. Don't lose that. Hold on to that because he is. He is beautiful. He is our Savior. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is worth your entire life to know him. But you can also flip the parable upside down and look at it from another way. He's not the only treasure. Think about it then this way. Jesus, God sent Jesus to the world to look for lost treasure. And he searched all over the world looking for you. And you're his treasure. You've been forgotten. You've been left behind. You've been passed over. You've been rejected. You've been overlooked. People have not seen your value. You've been buried and you're dead. And he's found you. And when he found you, he gave up. His very life to claim you. 
because you're valued. And you're, wow. Think, just think about it. The God of the heavens and the earth found you and what others threw aside, he claimed as his own and gave his son. That's the gospel. And that's why we give all we have to him. Now think then about Jesus' ministry. It certainly was lived out in the way he lived his life. When he was calling apostles, he picked people that were overlooked and forgotten, fishermen and tax collectors. The first missionary in the Gospel of John was a demon-possessed man who was living among the tombs. He sent him back home to tell the good news to his family, to his friends. And then of all people on the road to Damascus, he chose a hate-spewing, murderous zealot named Saul to become the apostle to the Gentiles. And we're reading his letter as his treasure. Think then, you're sitting in the first century, and you're sitting in the sanctuary, and this letter's being read, and you're, you're hearing the preacher talk about you're his treasure, you're his inheritance. Imagine how that would sound if you were a slave in the first century sitting in the worship service hearing that I was God's treasure. Or imagine that you were a woman who had been discarded by her husband because you were unable to give him children. Or that you had been abandoned by your parents because of some flaw or defect in some way when you were born and you were orphaned, though your parents were still living, left behind and forgotten. The, the reality is that this fundamental sense of insecurity, that if you live in this world long enough, you'll feel devalued, you'll feel left behind. And this fundamental sense of insecurity is not a first century problem alone. It's a 21st century problem also. Think about what that means then to us. Some of you, every day you get up and what do you do? You strap on your angel wings because you want to take care of everybody, including those who don't want to be taken care of. Why? We have a need for approval. Why is it that some of you, why is it that some of you take a vow of silence and don't say what's on your heart and mind? Because you're more concerned about what others think than what you think. Why is it that sometimes we will allow people to cross boundaries, unhealthy boundaries that we've established, and we will tolerate relationships in our lives that should be intolerable to us? Why will we allow other people to compromise our morals, to push us to places that we know we shouldn't go? It's because of that fundamental sense of insecurity. But if you will look at Jesus, you will find that at the core of Jesus and his being was this fundamental idea that God loved him and that God had chosen him. And he didn't have to be validated by the world around him because he was already validated by the one that counted. That's why he did not have to defend himself. That's why he did not argue with others about who he was. Because at his baptism, the heavens parted and the voice from above said, I love you. And that's where his identity was. If you want to be truly free to be the person you were created to be, claim your God-given identity, your worth, your value, 
your goodness, your acceptance, and the God that created you rather than what the world says about you. Which I'm preaching. Isn't that a wonderful message? It's a wonderful message. By the way, if you're a parent and you're raising kids, this is the most important thing you can do for your children. To help them feel good about themselves in a world where they're constantly bullied and maligned. So by the time they leave your house, if they've got inside of them what they need, you don't have to worry about it as much. Because they'll have that fundamental core of I am who I am because I am who God made me. And I don't have to follow you in that direction. I'm good with that. Okay. So chapter 2, you didn't read this and you go, man, what happened? I mean, Paul, I'm, I'm thinking you're a little bit. I'm not, under, I'm not understanding this. In fact, I will honestly that sometimes I've been accused of being gospel light. What I mean by that is not hitting the hard stuff enough about sin and evil. When you read this, it's hard to understand because Paul's talking about all these good things. He says, you're blessed and um, you're adopted, you're chosen, uh, you, you're his inheritance, you're his treasure. And all of a sudden he goes, you're dead, you're dead in your transgressions, you've been following your cravings, your objects of wrath. I read that and I go, what, what do I do with that? Hold on with me for a minute. This is important. Because I want you to understand what Paul is doing. Paul wants to understand who you are without Christ. So that you can understand who you are with Christ. He wants you to understand your fundamental human condition. The world we live in and where we came from. He wants you to know how far he had to reach down to pull you up. Because it's not until you know that you can't pull yourself up out of the pit on your own. It's not until you know that, that you can receive all that God wants to give you. Because it's at that moment when you give up, when you say, I quit, I can't do it, I'm dead, 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 and dead people can't help themselves. It's not until you reach that moment. That God can help you. So that's why he says you were dead. And by let's just walk through it. He lays it on. He wants you to tap out. He wants you to cry uncle and say, I am dead. He wants you to know that we're all on equal ground, equal footing. When he says you're dead, he's not talking about physical death. He's talking about a spiritual death. And the Bible means when he says dead, he means separated from God. Separated from God, from your life. You're out there dead in the field. It's not that you've just been forgotten. You're dead and buried when he came looking for you. And by transgressions, he means trespasses. What that means is, it, trespass means that there's been a boundary established for life. And you keep walking over it. You keep stepping over it. Over those boundaries. Every one of us. When he says sin, dead in your sins, what does he mean? He's not talking about drinking and smoking and dancing and all those kinds of things like we were taught when we were growing up. What sin means is to miss the mark. Pulled an arrow back, shot at the target, I missed the mark. I missed the bullseye. I missed the target. 
And everybody knows what it means to miss the target. He's saying God has expectations. He has a mark he wants us to hit, and we keep missing it. Any husband in this room ever inflict his wife with his bad mood? <laughs> oh, yeah. How many, how many people have hit the mark in terms of being a spouse? How many have hit the mark in terms of being a parent? Don't tell me your kids aren't going to need therapy. <laughs> Why do you think you've been in therapy? Hurt people hurt people. When it comes to your work and to your employment, where you work, do you give your best every, do you hit the mark every day? Do you ever show up with a bad attitude? No, no you don't. And so he's saying, we have all missed the mark. We have all crossed boundaries. And then he uses this phrase, we have followed the ways of the world. And the word followed means to be mastered by. It's not just walking after. It is to be mastered or controlled by something. He's saying that we live in the world and our lives have been shaped more by the world around us than by the God who created us when it comes to our values, how we treat people, what we want, where we look for happiness, all those things. How we deal with forgiveness and hurt feelings. He said our lives and the way we react in our default mode is often more shaped by the world than who he is. And so we are mastered by the world. We're mastered by dark forces that work in the world that are beyond our control. And he says we're mastered by our cravings, our desires unhealthy desires, the desire for more, on and on and on and on. And he just keeps laying it on and laying it on. And when he talks about our sinful nature here, what he means is that the human heart does not have the capacity to save itself or resurrect itself because it's curved in on itself. That we by nature are self-centered at heart. And so then, you know, I know what you're thinking, what they were thinking back then. They would go, I'm really glad that Paul is talking about those people around me. So to make sure that we're all included, he says, all of us. And he said, like the rest of us, we were objects of wrath. Like the rest, we're all, we're all here. Like the rest, we were all by nature objects of wrath. What that means is we're all children who've walked away from God. That's what he's saying. So here's what he wants you to know. When he found you, you were dead. And dead people can't fix themselves. You were beyond, beyond life. But then. Hearing that, you're ready. You're going, yeah. And then he says, but God. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. We were dead, but he made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by God's grace you have been saved. What he's saying is he found you. You were lost. You were overlooked. 
you were forgotten, you were dead. He found you, he cleaned you up, he lifted you up in order to show the world that he is good so that when people look at your life and see who you were and who you are now and what he means to you, that they can look at you and say, God is good. There is hope for me. You see, you can give the people the Bible to read it, but the best Bible they have to read is you, your life, your changed life, the love of God in your life. Who's re- I was dead, but now I live. Martin Luther. Uh, this is a famous painting of Martin Luther. Martin Luther is the great Protestant reformer from the 16th century. October 31st, 1517. Uh, 500 years from this October. He nailed 95 theses to a door in a church in Wittenberg. He was protesting the abuses of the church at that time, the Roman Catholic Church at that time, and their abuse of power and their lust for power. He was also protesting the sell of indulgences. By the way, if you want to raise money for a building project, it's a great thing to do. We should start selling them ourselves. Pay off the church debt. And there was a guy named Tetzel who'd go around the countryside singing, When a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. It was easy. Drop a coin in the collection plate, and the loved ones who are burning in hell get to go straight to heaven and get to flee through purgatory. You buy salvation. He was then also protesting the idea that the the Pope had the final word, that Scripture has the final word, but most importantly, it was about the grace of God. Because Martin Luther was a super sensitive priest who struggled with the weight of his sin. His heart was heavy and burdened, and he just couldn't lift it from himself. And then one moment he was reading through the Apostle Paul in Romans, And he heard, it is by grace, by faith you've been saved. Faith alone and grace that saves you. And he was just set free. And so the Protestant Reformation, the reason that we're here today, the reason we are who we are today is because of a a little priest who became convinced of the grace of God. And the, the banner statement for the Protestant Reformation, the Reformation of the church, was sola gratia. Grace. Grace. Alone. So you see what he's doing here in this scripture? I found you. You were dead. But God has shown you his grace. And here's where it ends. It's just beautiful. Isn't this great to see the way, isn't it great? Aren't you just excited to see the way the Bible's working? It's not so hard, is it? It's not so hard. This is not hard stuff. Just a little bit of work. Verse 10, for we are God's workmanship. We are God's masterpiece. He takes you. You were buried, you were dead. He gives you life. He recreates you. And you become his masterpiece remember this one masterpiece Mona Lisa 
That's a masterpiece. This is my favorite. Starry, Starry Night, Vincent Van Gogh. Or this one. I hope you get to see this someday in person. Ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. This is a terrific masterpiece. Not so much, but it's funny, isn't it? I don't care. I just love that little dog passing that card with his foot. Yeah. But this, of all the things that I've ever seen in my life, every, uh, I've seen some amazing things. This is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I remember walking down the hallway. I was about 100 yards from it, and I could see it. Uh, Michelangelo's David carved out of a several-ton piece of marble that was, they found in a field. He, he was commissioned in his 20s to do this. Others had tried to make something of it. They were going to set it up in the center of the town square in Florence, Italy. No one knew what to do with the block. They knew they were going to use it for something special. It was one of the biggest blocks of marble in the world at the time. But Michelangelo knew what to do with it. Everybody else looked at it and they just saw a big block of marble. But when Michelangelo looked at it, he saw the David, the beautiful David on the inside. And so he took it. And with his vision for what he could see, the, the treasure inside, he began to chip away all the hard edges and the pieces. Until the beautiful thing inside was revealed to the world. Is that not our story? Is that not what happens when we give ourselves to Jesus? He finds us. He redeems us. He chips away the edges to reveal the people that we were created to be, to do his work in the world. We are not good to be saved. We are not saved because we are good. We are saved because God is good. And we are good because he saved us in gratitude. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ.